Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 62. After the Mike Budenholzer news at the end of last week, rumors are swirling, Woj bombs, and Brian Windhorst is making things up on ESPN. (laughs) Coaching rumors running rampant. We'll talk about some of that now, four days after the firing of head coach Mike Budenholzer. The Brewers... They can win a game in the month of May. After an outstanding April, May had been a mess. This road trip was a disaster. Craig Council's getting ejected left and right with a balk call on Saturday. But finally get a win. Adrian Hauser returns. That was good news on Sunday. End the road trip on a winning note. And the other good news was nobody in the NL Central did anything. And the Brewers actually made up ground on a road trip where they went 1-5. in five. We'll also talk about the Packers seemingly deciding on Mercedes Lewis's future with the team. It's National Drink of Coke Day. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin record-breaking run! We're going to smash up the middle, face hit the side. Snap. He looks, he throws, it's intercepted, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, backed away, it's stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul, and a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there, and they're the champions. They have done it. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yes, it is National Drink a Coke Day today. We did some Coca-Cola trivia on the B93 Morning Show this day in history, 1886. Jacobs Pharmacy in Atlanta sells the first ever Coca-Cola. It was invented by John Pemberton. I did not know this. John Pemberton was a lieutenant in the Confederate Army in the Civil War. Does Twitter know about that? Could we get John Pemberton canceled a hundred and however many years later, 140 years later? Could I get Coca-Cola canceled? Do the Twitter historians know the origins of Coke are connected to the Confederate Army? But after John Pemberton left the Army, after the war was over, he was searching for something or trying to create something that would solve his pain issues coming out of the war and shrapnel and all kinds of stuff he was dealing with there. And he accidentally invented Coke. And actually, right after it, when he invented Coke, they billed it as something that would help with pain, help with headaches, help with nausea, help with heartburn. You could say anything back in 1885. What a beautiful time to be in ad in advertising. You didn't have to be Don Draper in 1887. You could just say this product does anything. It cures cancer, and nobody could tell you different. You could literally say anything and sell any product. But that is the origin story, and that is why today is National Drink a Coke Day. My wife was running errands late last week, and I had not had a Coke from McDonald's, and I can't tell you how long. In college, I used to do that a lot. I worked a janitorial crew. I actually worked a real job in my life, one real job, and I decided after six months, this is not for me. I'm not built for this. My hands are too soft. I'm not built for this kind of work. 
But we would do 10-hour days in the summer, and then I would always go. There was a McDonald's right across the street from the dorms that we were cleaning and turning over all the time. And I would get a gigantic Coke with lemon, whatever the biggest one was, 36 ounces or whatever. It was so good. But I haven't had that in a very long time. She had an appointment last week, and she came home on Thursday afternoon, and she said she went to Coke. She went to McDonald's to get a Coke. And she had a little left over and said, do you want a sip? And I took a sip of that, and I felt like Barney in The Simpsons. I have never— Just took it to my veins! What is going Just on? Just took it to my veins! Has anybody ever figured out exactly why it is that Coke at McDonald's tastes so much? Much better than any other Coke. And Coke's pretty good all the time. I'm getting to an age now where I can't have caffeine after a certain hour. Six-year-olds and 40-year-olds have the same problem. There's that little run in your 20s where you can have caffeine at 8 o'clock and fall asleep two hours later. Not where I'm at now. But I always enjoy a Coke or a Cherry Coke is always a good mixer once in a while. Cherry Coke on its own is really good. But I had not had a McDonald's Coke in probably 10 years, and the second I took a sip of that thing, my pupils dilated, the hair on my arms stood up. What are they doing to the Coke over there? Are they going old recipe with the traces of cocaine leaves in there? I mean, it just tasted so good. I'm going to go and get another one this week. I've got to be real careful because now I feel like it's a gateway. I'm going to be back there every day now. But, man, does that taste good. And if you ever have a chance, I've been to Atlanta twice, one with the North High Marching Band, Sheboygan North. That was our band trip in 2001, our junior year. Shout out to the North <laughs> to the North High Pep Band. Uh, the bus trip down to Atlanta. Just a bunch of sweaty 17-year-old band kids on a trip to Atlanta. I'll never forget the first stop we made. If you ever go to Atlanta, it is a heritage place. It's called the Varsity Restaurant. It's kind of like a Culver's, just a burger joint, but it's been around for forever, and they have their own hats. You go in and you get your Varsity hat. That was the first stop we made after however long, a 16-hour, a 15-hour bus trip from Sheboygan to Atlanta. And for a variety of reasons that I'm sure you can understand at 16, 17, 18 years old, when you're on the coach bus, and we made stops, but when you're on the coach bus, you don't want to be the person using the bathroom. Even though there is a bathroom on the coach bus, you don't want to be the person walking back there and suffering that ridicule of walking back and walking out. You don't want to be baking a loaf on the band trip. But that meant at the first stop, it was a land rush by everybody on that bus to get to the bathrooms. And I will never forget for the rest of my life going to the varsity right out of that bus. And I sat down in a stall at the varsity and realized there are no doors on any of the bathrooms because it's an old restaurant, it's an old facility. They just never put doors on there. So you were just sitting in the open. And I thought, well, I guess we're going to see what happens if you <laughs> if you hold this for forever. Just evaporated. That's what happened over the course of the next two hours. Never forget that moment. But we went down there then, and we toured the Coke plant then, and then my wife and I went to a concert in the fall of 2021. That was the second time I had been to Atlanta, and we did the whole thing, Centennial Park and the Coke tour. If you ever have a chance to go down there, it is totally worth it. You get to sample a bunch of Coke. You get to sample all of the international Coke flavors, which are so much different because America, we love our sugar. We love it. Where's my Wilford Brimley? Diabetes. But we love the sugary anything, drinks, whatever, food. And you have some of these sodas from other countries where that is not necessarily the case. And you think they taste so disgusting because there's not that 80 grams of sugar in it. But you get to walk around and sample all the stuff. And you're in and out of there in about 90 minutes. Sometimes you get overwhelmed on museum trips. There's so much. You go to the Country Music Hall of Fame or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or whatever. 
and it just you're there for eight hours and you barely scratch the surface. They get you in and out in a couple hours. If you're ever down to Atlanta, it's a fun little trip. And yeah, get the kids down there and do the whole soda thing. It's good. National have a Coke day today. All right. We will just get into one rumor I saw. Not a whole lot of movement on the Bucks coaching front. And now we're, what, four days in the aftermath of the firing of head coach Mike Budenholzer. And now we just wait. And like we said on Friday's podcast, this is the plum job. This is the job that everybody's going to want there. I can't even think of another job that would come open in the miraculous world where some other gig with a longtime head coach or a team that's in a playoff run right now would fire their coach. I can't envision that. Like the Celtics would fire Joe Mazzula. I don't know. Maybe they don't win the finals. Maybe they would. That might be the one that would be a half notch ahead of Milwaukee. I don't see that happening. But Milwaukee will be the destination that you want to be. You've got a perennial MVP candidate in the prime of his career. Who knows how the rest of the roster is going to shape up. Most of Buck's Twitter I've noticed in the last three or four days after the Budenholzer firing, and we talked about this on Friday too, they seem to be pretty much in favor of bringing back Brooke Lopez, even if the new head coach doesn't have the same drop defense scheme that Budenholzer did where Brooke Lopez was just the perfect fit. Brooke Lopez is a very good player in a variety of ways, but he was the perfect center for that drop defense. Even if the new head coach does not implement that kind of defense, the new head coach, if you can't find a way to use Brooke Lopez, a guy who's shooting 38% from beyond the arc and who can score inside and gives you the shot blocking and finish second in defensive player of the year voting, if you can't find a use for him, Buck's Twitter pretty unanimously, I think, wants Brooke Lopez back, as do I. Chris Middleton's going to be more of one to watch. There have been some rumors about the Dallas Mavericks maybe targeting him. We'll see what he does if he opts in for the $40 million or he opts out and tries to get a payday and if the Bucks are the team to pay him. But regardless of how the roster shakes down, just watching all those coaching rumors now, the one that I saw in the last 24 hours that's kind of been gaining some steam is Tyron Liu. If he were to become available, he was in L.A. with the Clippers this year. He had to deal with so much injury stuff with that aging team, and he still got them to succeed. They still pushed Phoenix with Durant and Paul and Devin Booker. As far as they could push him without Paul George, without Kawhi really for most of that series, trying to get Russell Westbrook the most out of him in that series. But that would be a name that would be out there that I think a lot of different fans would like to see because he's had success and mainly you go for that run with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Hey, they had LeBron. They had a lot of talent, but he'd have Giannis here. That is one flaw in my Nick Nurse logic. I did think back to that when we talked about Nick Nurse and how I wasn't as enthused as some Bucks fans are about Nick Nurse. And the rationale I had for it on Friday's podcast is that if you look back at his four-year run in Toronto, he won the title and went through Bud and the Bucks to win the title. He had prime Kawhi Leonard, though, and he had uninjured prime Kawhi Leonard. And then he ran into a very injured Warriors team in the finals. It just seemed to me he caught lightning in a bottle Kawhi's one year in Toronto. And then after Kawhi left, they won 53 games in his second year and were out in the second round. But then after that, didn't do much. I guess my thinking was he did it with Kawhi, almost any coach. With the way Kawhi was playing that year, almost any coach worth his salt probably could have won the title with Kawhi playing the way he was and then the Warriors being as hurt as they were in the NBA Finals. That's what I was thinking, but then I also have to think Nick Nurse is going to have a superstar. If the logic, John, is, well, Nick Nurse hasn't won anything without a superstar like Kawhi Leonard, well, he's going to have a superstar. Anybody who comes to Milwaukee, if that's one of the arguments against that coach, well, they've never won anything without a superstar. You could say the same thing about Tyron Lue. He's won a lot of games, hasn't won a title without LeBron James. Well, he will have Giannis. We know he will have whatever coach it is that comes in. 
they will have a superstar in Giannis. But he had a very good run with the Cavaliers. That was every year of that four years where we all knew before the season even began, and then it ended up that way every year where it was going to be LeBron and the Cavaliers taking on Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and the Warriors, and they met four times in a row in the finals and won the championship in 2016, 2015, 2016. And he's been pretty good in L.A., 47 and 25 three years ago, battled injuries last year, 42 and 40, 44 and 38 this year, and lost in the first round. Again, didn't have the two best players in the team playing for that series basically at all Kawhi for a game or two and Paul George not at all he would be an intriguing prospect I think if he is in fact available this does go back to that Woj commentary where it felt very intentional that Woj at the end of some NBA segment when they were talking about the firing of Budenholzer on either Thursday night or Friday morning he pretty intentionally said that the Bucks are going to take their time and that everything is in play not just coaches that are currently available like Nick Nurse like, who else were we talking about on Friday? Like Charles Lee, the lead assistant for for Bud. They seem to think, or at least the NBA analysts and the rumor guys like Woj and Shams, they seem to think that the Bucks will be in play maybe for a coach that already has a job. If you can find some sort of compensation there in some form of a trade and bring in a coach that already has a job that wants to make the move, that might be available too. That would be the case with Tyron Lue because he is under contract. I don't know why he would want to leave L.A., but maybe he is a guy who could be out there. But that's the most recent rumor that I've seen just based on the pacing already. I don't anticipate a lot's going to happen this week. We did discuss if it is Nick Nurse, if that's just the guy, and they know that already, then maybe something happens in a week or two. But I just I don't envision a lot happening during this week or even until the NBA playoffs are over. Once the playoffs are done and the championship is decided, I would expect things to move pretty quickly. It's maybe three weeks after that where things move in terms of free agency. We'll find out about Brooke. We'll find out about Middleton, any personnel moves. You would want to have a coach in place by then. But I don't doesn't feel like this is going to be moving at too rapid of a pace. NBA playoffs, by the way, it's just tough to watch. I am watching them. If you're a Bucks fan... It is tough to watch. How about the Heat, though? I mean, they are up 2-1 to one on the Knicks. At least they're not they're not shooting as hot as they were. It was a rock fight. Shut up, Paul. Rock fight of a game whenever it was on Saturday or Sunday where the Heat beat the Knicks in Game 3, 103-86. Both teams shot barely above 30% in that game. I guess that gives me some solace that they're cooling off. But, man, are they playing well. They're up 2-1. to one. They played tonight in Miami. Could go up 3-1. to one. And it's looking more and more like Miami is going to be on their way to the Eastern Conference Finals after they were almost out. They lose the play-in tournament game, first game at home to Atlanta. Technically, by the way, the Heat were a seven seed. Does that make you feel any better? Not really. But I do want to throw that out there. If this season were like any season before the play-in tournament, the Heat were a seven seed. They lost then to the eight seed, so that moves up the Hawks to the seven seed. But if this were a year like any other year that I've seen before the play-in tournament was implemented... They are a seven seed. Does that make me feel a whole lot better? Not really. But they were a quarter away. They lost that game to Atlanta at home, and then they almost lost to the Bulls, and the Bulls was the team I wanted to play in the first round. They had the lead the Bulls did in Miami in the fourth quarter. The Heat rally there, get a win, dust the Bucks. It sends the entire Bucks franchise into chaotic orbit, and now... It looks like they're going to get past New York. I mean, the series isn't over, but if they win tonight, it basically is. And that could get them to the Eastern Conference Finals. I did have somebody on the B93 text line pose to me the question of, or at least the idea of, John, would you feel better about the Bucks' loss to Miami? Let's say the Heat got to the finals. Or let's say the Heat won the championship. I don't see that happening, but I didn't see the Bucks losing to them in five games. I didn't see them winning in the second round, which it looks like they're going to do. Does that make you feel any better? And the answer 
is no. It does not. It does not. It just doesn't. I know some fans can think that way, and I'm envious of it, where if the Heat get to the Eastern Conference Finals or the Finals or they win a title, then Bucks fans, there are some out there that will say, well, maybe it wasn't as big of an upset as we thought it was, and it was a team that was battling injuries all year. They got healthy kind of at the right time, but then they got hurt. Tyler Hero out. Or they got healthy at the right time just before the playoffs. They're a playoff team. They're battle-tested. They were just biding their time in the regular season. You can spin it a lot of different ways, but the answer at the end of the day is one word, no. I do not feel any better. The Heat could play for 10 more rounds in a row, and I would never feel better about the way that first-round series ended. But they are kind of rolling right now. And then yesterday, what did you have? A really good Denver-Phoenix game last night where Jokic dropped 50 and Durant and Booker combined scored 72 or 73 points. That series is even. Here's how down I am. This is what the kids call down bad or out of pocket. Is that a phrase that I'm using correctly? Probably not. (laughs) But uh, this is what I have heard. You're down bad. This is how I know I'm down bad. I'm still watching the NBA playoffs here and there, not sitting down for full games. So I'm still watching it because I am an NBA fan at the end of the day and was for many years before the Bucks were even good ever. But I did watch a lot of that Sixers-Celtics game yesterday, game four. Here's how down I am. I am rooting. I found myself rooting, actively rooting for James Harden and the Philadelphia 76ers. That's how much I hate the Celtics in the last two or three years and all of their different people on Twitter, Celtics Twitter, and their podcasters and their reporters after that series last year in the second round. I hate the Celtics, and I want nothing but pain for them. I want nothing but pain for Celtics fans. And for that reason, I am actively in that series finding myself pulling for and being excited when James Harden hits big shots and the Sixers win. That's down bad. That's Johnny down real bad. That series is even. The Celtics have outplayed the Sixers in every single game by 90%, but James Harden has had two wildly successful games, and that has been enough. They got the go-ahead three yesterday. That series even at two as they head back to Boston later in the week. It is tough to watch, but I, I do find myself rooting for the Sixers just so I can see maximum pain on the side of Celtics fans. All right, let's talk about the Brewers. The road trip was a mess. Bad, real bad. They had a tremendously successful month of April, 18-10, and 10, the fourth best April in franchise history. May decidedly has been the opposite. Up until yesterday, they had not won. They were 0-6 in the month of May. The three-game set in Colorado was a disaster against the last-place team. Couldn't score runs in Colorado. And then on to San Francisco, Corbin Burns got touched up on Friday, lost that game despite having a lead. We had the balk incident on Saturday. My wife and I were at a birthday party for one of her friends watching the Kentucky Derby. How about my boy? What was his name? Who did we pick at the end of the podcast? He finished last. Last place. I've lost bets before, but dead last. I forget the name of the horse at the Derby. But we were at a birthday party down at Eagle Park Brewing in Muskego. It's good if you've never been there. I'm still a basic beer kind of guy. Scumbag beer taste at the end of the day. But they had a lot of different options down there that were pretty good. But, yeah, it was just a disaster of a derby. But we were down there partying and talking to people, and I wasn't watching the Saturday game that closely. But we did all see it was on TV, the council ejection. You had the three disengagements, and council got upset, and Adamus got upset. That was a mess. They tried to rally late. Cyclone Mischief was the name of the horse. But they tried to rally, couldn't get it on Saturday. And then finally on Sunday, the offense puts it together. Yelly had two hits and a couple of runs. Adamas hit career home run number 100. William Contreras hit a two-run bomb. He has been as advertised, by the way. I guess we haven't really gotten into because it's so early in the year, the specifics of this team. 
that was a massive trade in the offseason, in an offseason where the Brewers didn't do a whole lot, although the moves they have made appear to be pretty shrewd. The one free agent move they made is for Wade Miley, who's been spectacular, and then the big trade was bringing in all-star catcher DH, William Contreras, Wilson Contreras' little brother from Atlanta, and he's been great. He's hitting 290, not hitting the amount of home runs maybe we saw him hit last year. He could get hot. It's so early in the year. He hit his second yesterday. He hits a ton of doubles, contact to all fields. He's been a much better catcher than we thought he would. That was sort of the bill on him when he came in. He's a great offensive player, but the catching leaves something to be desired, the frame rate and throwing out runners. He's been great behind the plate by any measure. That has been a very good move for Matt Arnold in the offseason. But he had a couple of hits in the two-run bomb yesterday. The bigger news to me yesterday was the return of Adrian Hauser. Didn't think I'd be saying that sentence this year, but here we are. The injuries have been a problem. They just have been. Trying to figure out the rotation in the absence of Brandon Woodruff has been a real problem. and He's going to be out until the end of June. Well, we talked a few podcasts ago that maybe Adrian Hauser could be part of that solution. At that time when we discussed it, he was on rehab assignment, made his first start, I thought looked pretty good. Four and two-thirds, gave up only two runs. He's a sinker ball pitcher. He'll throw you 94-95 here and there, but he relies on control. He relies on contact, and he relies on his defense making plays. And with the exception of the three or four straight hits he gave up with two outs in the second inning, he looked pretty sharp to me. What Adrian Hauser are we going to get every five days? We will find out. He has been an every-other-year kind of guy. They got him in the deal... Was that the deal that brought Hader? I think it was, that brought Hader and Domingo Santana and all of those prospects. That was the Carlos Gomez deal. He may be the last guy. I'd have to go back and look at that. He is, I'm pretty sure, the last guy that is still on the Brewers franchise or on their roster that came over in that deal when they sent Gomez. Remember they sent Gomez to the New York Mets and then Wilmer Flores was crying on TV that he got traded and the Mets owner basically told their GM we're not trading Wilmer Flores and that trade got canceled. Gomez, who was on his way to New York, had to come back to Milwaukee, give a really weird interview before the Brewer game that night in a game he played and then he was traded the next day and they got that boatload from Houston in return that included Hauser and Hayter and Brett Phillips and Domingo Santana. Yeah, I think Hauser's the last one. But he had a year in 2019. He's an odd year guy, which bodes well this year. In 2019, he was 6-7 and seven with a 3.5 ERA. The win-loss record wasn't great, but you can't judge a pitcher by that. 3-6 ERA. He put up pretty good numbers that year. Pandemic year, disaster. He was 1-6 with an ERA over 6. Then in 2021, as a part of that outstanding rotation that was healthy basically the whole year, he went 10-6 and with a 3.22 ERA. And I even remember thinking that was the fifth guy on the rotation that year with Peralta and Burns and Woodruff and Lauer was really good that year. I remember thinking as that year ended that here is Adrian Hauser, our fifth starter in a five- or sometimes six-man rotation with a 10-6 and record and a 3.22 ERA. For most of my life, for most of my Brewer life, those numbers that Hauser put up in 2021, 10-6 and and a 3.22 ERA, those are your staff ace. You, We would have killed in 1998, 1999-2001, 2002-03. We would have been over the moon for a staff ace that was putting up those kind of numbers. And in that year... He was their fifth-best starter. 
Then last year, started out well. Eventually, the wheels fell off. He had a sub-500 record, ERA close to five. He's just one of those guys who right now in his career, every other year it seems like, well, we could really use him to be odd-year Adrian. Oh, there we, that's a nickname. Let's put that one down in the dream journal. Put that down on the idea on the Post-it notes next to me. All right, odd-year Adrian. Let's hope. Because if he can give you that, and he doesn't even have to give you that, just give me decent outings, quality starts, ERA a little above or a little below four, just trying to navigate this two-month stretch until you get your co-ace back. But that was big. Offense put together a pretty consistent day. I think everybody had a hit yesterday, and they get a 7-3 win. Strezlecki got himself in some trouble, got out of it, struck out the side in the eighth inning. That was good to see. Devin Williams finally got some work, gave up a home run, but if you're going to give up a home run as a closer, you want to do it in a game where you're just getting work and you're up by five runs. Get that one out of your system. That might be the only run or only the second run he's given up this year. They get a 7-3 win. They get one win on the road trip. I did have a texter this morning on the B93 text line, and this is true. You'd have to go back into the annals of history to see how many times this has happened. The texter said, how many times has it happened where a team goes 1-5 and five on a six-game road trip and makes up ground in the standings? I can't imagine that that's happened too much, but that was the case for the Brewers. We talked about this on Friday. This whole last week and a half, Depending on your perspective, will tell you if you're an optimist or a pessimist. I've been told in my life that I am an optimist to a fault. I am an annoyingly optimistic person. I don't know any other way to be. Sometimes I wish I weren't. But we talked about this on Friday, where the whole division was in a rut. The whole div- and it stayed in a rut the whole weekend. The Pirates are getting back to where we thought the Pirates would be. The Cubs got to win on Saturday, but I think all told, from Sunday to Sunday, the division had either four or five wins total from Sunday. To this past Sunday, yesterday, four total wins. And I said on Friday, if you're going to be in the muck, if you're going to be spinning your wheels and playing bad baseball and losing a lot of games, you may as well have that coincide with the rest of the division being dismal and in the doldrums. Now, depending on the kind of person you are, you will say, okay, you get a win on Sunday. Let's see what they can do with the six-game homestand now. The Dodgers series is not going to be easy, but you've got a nine-win Royals team coming in on Thursday, right? Or Friday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Uh, Some winnable games are coming up. We get a win on Sunday. You made up ground. The trip began. They were a game and a half out of first place. And because Pittsburgh lost again on Sunday, you end a one-and-five trip only a half game out of first place. And even in the loss column with Pittsburgh, if you're an optimistic fan, you say that was the right time for that stretch where you weren't winning games, playing bad baseball, bullpen had its issues, the offense couldn't score runs, but nobody else in the division was doing anything. If you're a pessimistic fan, you look at this run and you say, if you could have gone 3-3 and on this road trip or 4-2 and on this road trip, John, you'd have a three-game lead in the NL Central. Just depends on your perspective. I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong. Mine's right, but I'm not saying one's right or wrong. No, I'm really not. It just depends on the kind of person you are and the way you look at sports and the way you look at stretches of games like that, whether it be baseball, football, or basketball, I'm choosing to look at it as it was a good time for the Brewers to be bad because everybody was bad and they didn't lose ground. And in fact, they made up a little bit of ground. That's how bad it was. Now we see if they can get back on the right track. You've got three games with L.A. Not going to be easy. Dodgers seem to be getting hot. They were uneven to begin the year, but you knew with their payroll and their roster of talent, it wasn't going to stay that way. They've got Tony Gonsolin on the mound tonight. He was a 16-1 and record last year. And I remember he had one game at AmFam Field. We might have gone to that game. 
where he just handcuffed the Brewers all night. They could not touch him. Hopefully that will not be the case. It's only his third start of the year. Freddie Peralta going for the Brewers. They will play Tuesday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday afternoon, then a day off. Then the last place Royals will be in town. Hopefully that goes better than the series against the last place Rockies. But that will be the six-game homestand this week, L.A. for three and Kansas City for three. And then finally, we will wrap up on some Packer news, not shocking news or even big news. It does not sound like Mercedes Lewis is going to be coming back to Green Bay. He's been out there as a name that could return the big dog. I did love playing. Where's my let the big dog eat? Anytime he made a play, made a catch, had a touchdown. When we played highlights back in the morning, we'd play this Brick McCliff from Rookie of the Year. Let the big dog eat! I loved playing that clip for Mercedes Lewis. At 39 years old, he is going to set a record, right, for most seasons played as a tight end. Former first-round pick. That was always a fun little joke. Anytime Rodgers hit Mercedes Lewis for a touchdown, finally a first-round pick. But it makes sense. This team is going younger, and they're just going to rely on the young tight ends they just drafted, even though Mercedes could give you some leadership and probably some guidance and almost act as a player coach. He is going to probably make some money. Will he end up in New York? He has said he does not want to play in New York. We'll see if that ends up being the case or not, or if yet another Packer is going to follow Aaron Rodgers out and play with the Jets. But it doesn't sound like he'll be back. He put in great work during his time here, though. He didn't catch a ton of footballs. That was never his role. He essentially acted as an extra offensive lineman. His blocking was superb. When he did get the ball thrown his way, he had a couple of touchdowns, and he came up with that huge catch. That was a throwback catch in that Miami game on Christmas Day. Remember that? Down the sideline, one of Aaron Rodgers' best throws of 2022. And that catch by Mercedes in that moment as they were coming back in Miami, that was a big one. Probably his most memorable single catch in a Packer jersey. It makes sense, though. They're going to go young. I know there's been a big debate on Packer Twitter about rebuild. Did we talk about that on the podcast, or did I talk about that on the air? I can't remember. It is very compelling. When you go on Packer Twitter right now, that there are a lot of fans that seem upset that they are building for the future and they are going to be in a rebuild. I don't know how you can be upset about that. The same fans that wanted Aaron Rodgers out the door are upset now that we are probably in the middle of at least a transitional year or two. And yeah, if you want to throw the term rebuild on there, that's fine. It's just shocking to me that the same fans that were kicking Aaron Rodgers, a four-time MVP, future Hall of Fame quarterback out the door, were done with him, done with the drama, done with the contract, don't want him anymore. Okay, we got rid of him. Now we are going to start our first-year starting quarterback, and we're going to draft a lot of young guys, 21, 22 years old, and then the same fans are upset that we're throwing the term rebuild around. It's going to take a little bit for Packer fans to wrap their mind around this year, maybe next year, or depending how good or bad Jordan Love is, it could be a few years. Maybe they jump right back into contention this year. We have no idea. But as we sit right now in May with a first-year starting quarterback and a ton of youth on this team, you at least have to hedge in the direction that there is going to be a mini-rebuild or a transition year. But after 30-plus years of Hall of Fame quarterback play, it's very difficult for us as a fan base to look at a season that way. And we haven't really had to do that since 2008. That was the last time, Rodgers' first year, where there was intrigue and mystery around the team because we just didn't know what they were going to be after years and years and years of being a division title contender, a playoff contender, and a Super Bowl contender. But Mercedes does not sound like he will be in the fold for next year. Vegas does have the season win total at 7.5. If they go over, they would have the same record as last year, 8-9. and nine. Oh, by the way, I saw the first on FanDuel, which we can't use in Wisconsin. I wonder if Oneida or Pato have college football 
over-under win-loss predictions yet. Maybe I'll make a drive down there. What else can I go to? Trader Joe's down there and stop at Total Wine and then go, go to Pato and see if they have any futures on the Badger season win total. But FanDuel has the Badger season win total at 9. And I was texting my boys. Maybe I'm getting caught up in the hype. A lot of Badger fans probably are. The Luke Fickle era, all of the three- and four-star recruits and the five-star recruits that are coming in and the transfer portal guys, it just feels like there has been a massive infusion of talent in this program, and there's so much energy behind it right now, and the schedule is so soft. They don't play Michigan. They don't play Penn State. They play nobody non-conference. They go to the on the road to Washington State, I guess, and they lost to Washington State at home. But that was at the beginning of the year before Paul Chris was even fired. It was almost like a totally different program when they lost that game. They don't play, really, in my mind, anybody non-conference. The most difficult game is Ohio State, and they get that one at home in late October. I just It feels to me that this team has a 12-game schedule. I'm not saying 12-0. and 0. I'm thinking it. I'm not saying it. But I think at minimum, barring catastrophic injury, this is a 10-2 team, isn't it? Or an 11-1 team? I was texting my boys about two or three weeks ago, and I said, if this season win total is 10 or under, I probably am going to make the biggest bet of my life. And I'm not going to tell you how much money that is, but I would, on the on the season win total, if it's 10 or under, if it's sitting at 9, you're telling me they go 9-3, and three, I just get my money back, I get a push? And if they go 10-2 and two with that soft schedule and the new regime and all the talent, that that pays one-to-one? I am hoping that my book or a Pato book or an Oneida book has them at 9. If that season win total is at 9, I cannot bet the house fast enough on that. And again, maybe I'm just getting caught up, and I understand that this is all in practice right now and not in execution, but it just feels like this team is going to be 10-2, and two, right? 10-2, and 11-1, maybe fighting for a spot in the Big Ten championship game? I would think. But that was the first win total that I had seen. Unfortunately, it was FanDuel, unless I drive across the border to Gurney and make the bet that way. But that's the only one I've seen so far. But it just feels like this team is going to win at least nine games this year with the fickle era and the soft schedule. I was brought back down to earth a little bit after the spring game because Tanner Mordecai, the transfer who appears to be the starting quarterback, despite the fact that they got Evers or Evers from Oklahoma and they're bringing in a bunch of four- and five-star quarterbacks, and they already have Miles Burkett on the roster. I was hoping we'd see more of him. Doesn't feel like that's likely at this point. I credit to him for staying with the program, though. But Tanner Mordecai, who only has the one year, and put up all those big numbers at SMU. It feels like he is going to be the guy, and he just got picked apart in that spring game. That did bring me back down to earth a little bit. I was following Twitter during that game, and he was throwing pick after pick after pick. And maybe the defense is just that good. Do you ever think about that? But that did bring me back down to earth a little bit. But if the season win total is nine, it is going to be a bet the house situation. Bet the not the house, the mortgage. Just one mortgage. I'll sell one mortgage, please. I hope that's what it is when it finally comes up on my book. All right, that'll do it for us this week. I regret to inform you, I am taking some time off at the end of the week. My wife and I have some vacation time and some days to burn. In the past, I have done kitchen table podcasts, but doesn't feel like that's going to fly this time around. Unless there's something major. If the Bucks make a coaching move or there's a big injury or something happens with the Packers or whatever, Unless there's some massive news, we will be done for this week, and we will be back with you on Monday, one week from today. Enjoy your work week. We'll chat with you then.